But tonight, tonight we kick off a brand new series, and that series is called Related. And the point of this series, if you think about your life, in so many ways your life breaks down into all kinds of different relationships, doesn't it? You've got foundationally, and we're going to talk about that for the next three weeks, you've got your relationship to the Creator. You've got your relationship to God, right? And then after that, maybe you've got your relationship to your, your family. You've got your relationship to your friends, got your relationship to your coworkers. You've got your relationship to your neighbors. You've got a relationship with the person that you run into at the grocery store, right? I mean, there are so many different forms and kinds of relationship in our lives, and, and we just need to understand that, that God has created us as relational beings and tends us to live this life in relationship with one another, and it begins with a right relationship with him. See, the, the point of all this is that the gospel transforms your relationship with literally everyone. And it begins with God. It begins with your relationship to the Father, your relationship to the Son, your relationship to the Spirit. That's where we're going the next three weeks. And then after that, we're going to talk about how the gospel impacts your relationship with one another. And then from there, how your gospel in, impacts your relationship even with the, the world at large and, and what that should look like. How your gospel, the gospel impacts your relationship with positions of authority in your life, whether that's mom and dad or maybe grandparents for some of you or a boss or, um, you know, elders in the church, pastors in the church. How, how does the gospel impact all of these things? Because it, it really does. But first up is our relationship to our creator, our relationship to our creator. See, before we come to Christ, a lot of us are in all kinds of different forms and uh, appearances, like this one up here. And if you're wondering who I'm picking on, Anybody want to take a guess? That's Danny Mayer. And if you were on the retreat with us, yeah, look at the flip phone. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Danny didn't know I was going to throw that one in there. So that's for free. But, but the gospel changes us. I mean, if you look at Danny right now, he doesn't look anything like that, does he anymore? And he probably doesn't act a whole lot like he used to act when he was taking that, that picture back in the day either. But the gospel transforms us, not just on the outside, but internally. It, it totally changes everything about us. And I want you to think about the word father. I want you to think about what comes to mind when you hear the word father. For some of you, it may be words like protector, provider, teacher, disciplinarian, love, care, concern, fun, sacrifice, good, family, right? Those, those may be words that you associate with the word father. And I know for some of you out there, that's just not the case. You've had a dad that's been absent from your life. You've had a dad that's totally abandoned his role as a father in your life. Maybe for some of you, you've never even met your father. And so you have no way to really conceptualize of a relationship with a father. And yet, the Bible time and time and time and time again refers to God as Father. It's an important thing for us to understand how we should relate to him as our Father because that's one of the key ways that he's revealed himself to us is that he is our Heavenly Father. As I was thinking about this message and where to go with this, there's so many different texts that we could land in. And you think about Paul, and Paul writes about our adoption in Romans 8, that we have not received a spirit of fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption by whom we can call out now Abba, which is that familial term for, for father, for dad, right? 
then now we've got a different relationship and now we've been adopted into that. We could go to Ephesians chapter one and look at the fact that God the Father has chosen us and called us and sealed us, right? And given us all these spiritual blessings. We could look at that element of, of God as our Father. But where I want to go, because I think it really reveals the heart of God as our Father, is to Luke chapter 15. So grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Probably a text you're familiar with, a text you've read year in and year out during the daily Bible reading time. Maybe not, though. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're not familiar with this passage. Maybe you've never read this passage. But I want you to read it, not so much with the eye towards, okay, I know the story from the prodigal's perspective, but I, I want you to read it and pay attention to how Jesus portrays the Father. Luke chapter 15, pick up in verse 11. Jesus says this, he says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Again, some of you have had troubled relationships with your father. A dad who's not been a dad the way that God has called men to be fathers, to be dads. A dad who has been abusive, a dad who has been sharp, a dad who has been hurtful with his words, a dad who's left you, a dad who's been negligent, a dad who's been passive, a dad who's not a believer. So for you to take this paradigm of, of a father and then now apply it to God, there's a disconnect that you have to overcome. But I want you to think of that ideal dad that you wish you always had. I want you to think of the dad that maybe you do have. For some of you out there, you look at your dad and you go, man, my dad has loved me well and he has been a godly man and, and I'm thankful for my dad. Think about him. But th those of you who you didn't have that, imagine that kind of a dad, a dad who's loved you the way that you wish your dad had always loved you. Now imagine going to him and telling him, you know what, dad, I, I know that you're still alive and everything, but I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm done with you. We, we've, we've kind of, we're, we're done with this whole father-son, father-daughter interchange here. And in fact, Dad, I, I would really appreciate it if I know you've, you've saved up quite a bit and you've got a, a nest egg uh, that you were going to give to us when, when you die and, and leave as your inheritance. But 
really, Dad, our relationship's over now, so can you go ahead and just give me my portion of what the inheritance is, and then I'm going to go ahead and, and peace out. I'm going to leave. It's hard to think about, isn't it? It's hard to think about going to somebody that you love and looking at them and saying, look, thanks so much for all that you've done, but, but really, I'm, I'm kind of I'm finished. I'm done with you. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And that's what the younger son does when he goes to his father there in the opening of this. And he says to him in verse 11, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, or verse 12, rather. He's telling his dad, look, dad, I'm done with you. There are some that are even saying that this was and would have been heard by the father and heard by the listeners as Jesus is telling this story. They're basically saying that this was the son looking at his dad going, dad, you're dead to me. Imagine that, severing that relationship at least and potentially even looking at him going, you're worthless to me, dad, you're dead to me. And your request is inheritance. What would you do if you were the father in that instance? You had worked hard, you had raised this son well, you'd provided for him, you'd made sure that he wasn't ever in need, you had even worked hard to make sure that there was an inheritance to leave behind for him. And he comes to you and says, Dad, I'm done. Go ahead and just give me what's coming to me. I know you're not dead yet, but you might as well be. What would your response be? Would you disown him? Would you deny him? Maybe would you become enraged at such a request that he would have the, the brazen insolence to make such a bold request of you and be so disrespectful? Would you just fly off the handle at him? Or would you just pivot on your foot and walk away without a word, maybe? But the father in the parable does none of this. The father in the parable, it says this in verse 12, and he divided his property between them. So during this time, what would have happened is there's an older brother and a younger brother. The older brother was essentially entitled to, to twice what the younger brother got. So the older brother would have received two-thirds of the father's estate, and the older brother decided he's not going anywhere. He's still loyal to his dad. He sticks around. But the younger brother takes a third of the value of his father's estate, and he leaves. You've probably figured it out by now that the father in this parable is intended to represent who? Our heavenly father, yes? God the father, right? And we are the son so often that our, our, our wandering hearts that are led around by the, the lusts of our flesh and chase after all the things that we feel like are, are better in this world. And we so often go to God with these things going, God, thanks so much for being God and thanks so much for getting me where I am. But, but can I have a little bit more because what you've given me isn't really measuring up. And what we're so often met with rather than rage, rather than anger, rather than uh, just in incredulity is we're met with the patience of the Father. And I want you to see that in this parable. That the father doesn't backhand this disrespectful, impudent child. He doesn't start yelling at him. He doesn't get angry with him. He doesn't curse at him. He doesn't do any of these things. That he's patient with him, even to the place of turning over a third of his estate. But I want you to also understand that his patience wasn't a passive patience. That this father is not weak in doing what he's doing. But that the father, in being patient with the son, had a goal behind that patience. He had a reason why he was going to be patient with the son. 
He knew that this was not a wise decision. He knew that this was not the right decision for his son to make. He knew that this was a disrespectful thing for his son to do and, and say to him. And yet, he knew that his role in being patient was going to pay off in the long term. And so the father is patient with the son. And y'all, he's so often patient with us as well. And that's what I want you to notice first tonight is this. Recognize the intent of God's patience. Recognize the intent of the father's patience in your life. Sometimes one of the loving things that a parent can do is, is to actually pull their hand off the child, right? Well, how many of you growing up maybe had mom or dad say, okay, fine, you can eat that candy, go for it, but you're going to get sick? Any of you? And that's a pretty, pretty simple and, and easy and, and safe example, right? Fine, if you want to stuff your face full of all that candy, go for it, but don't come crying to me when you don't feel good. The, the parent there is kind of pulling their hand back and, and being a little bit patient to allow the, the slack to run on that child, knowing that eventually it's going to run out and it's not going to end well, and they're going to learn a lesson in that process, right? There's an intention behind the patience. Well, y'all, did you know that there's an intention behind God's patience with you as well, with us? Paul talks about it in Romans 2. Verses four and five, he says this, do you presume, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? What's the word? Repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, Paul's writing to warn the, the reader, saying, look, God is being patient with you by not wiping you off the face of the planet right now, and you need to understand that patience. And you guys, listen, the, the, the patience of God has one of two outcomes, and he's doing one of two things, right? He's either patient with you so that you will come to repentance, and you'll say, I'm, I'm done with this sinful living. I'm done with this because it's, it's not what I thought it was going to be, and I recognize that it's bad for me. Or you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment under his patience. But either way, the Father right now is being patient towards you, but his patience is not weakness, and his patience is not without purpose. He's being patient with you for a reason. Sometimes God allows his children to wander in order that they might be brought to the place of recognizing how much better he is than anything in this world. Look back in the passage at verses 13 through 16. It says, not many days later, so the, the inheritance has been divided. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Let's just stop there for a second. So he takes the money from his father, the, the money that he's given him, and he goes off into this far country. He's trying to run from his dad. And he goes off into this far country and he begins to, it says, he squandered everything that he had with reckless living. Now, this is where we lose something in the English translation because it basically means he wasted everything with wasteful living. That's the, the Greek there. It's redundant to get us to understand that, that this was just foolishness. He goes out and he, he, he does everything that he thought his dad wouldn't let him do. He goes and he chases after everything that he felt, you know, my father won't give me this. And I know that if I have this, then I, I, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be satisfied. How often is that us with the world? Yes. We think to ourselves, oh man, God won't let me do this. And if I did this, then I would be happy. I'd be satisfied. 
Oh man, why, is, why does God think marijuana is a big deal? Why does God think alcohol is a big deal? Why does God think sex is a big deal? I mean, if, if, if he just let the leash off of us for a little while, then we would be happy, then we would be satisfied. And what we wind up doing is, is squandering everything with reckless living, wasting everything with wasteful living. See, in the moment, what seems to be so satisfying to us is why we return to it over and over and over and over and over again, whatever the sin is that you're chasing after, that you're thinking, God, you won't give this to me, and, and I have a problem with that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flee from you, Father, and I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to live the way I want to. And whatever that, whatever that is that you say, this is going to make me happy, this is going to make me satisfied. If you're going to be here tonight and say, well, it is, then you're just lying, because I've been there, guys. It doesn't satisfy you. It's why you have to go back again and again and again and again and again and again and again. In fact, did you know that drugs is built upon the fact that, that we're stupid people? Same thing with alcohol. It's built upon the backs of our own idiocy. Because we go to it, it gives us this temporal fix, and then it wears off, and you feel like garbage. And then you think, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to go do that again. And I need to go do that again because maybe next time the buzz will last longer, the high will sustain longer, but it, it always ends. And it promises it's going to satisfy us, and yet we have to go back to it again and again and again and again. And all the while, we're paying the price of our dignity and our sanctification and our joy and our satisfaction in our relationship with the Lord, our our intimacy with with God. We're we're just squandering that. We're throwing that all away in reckless living. Y'all, your entire life is a gift from God. Your entire life is, as we talked about on the retreat, a stewardship from God. And and yet, I want to ask you tonight, how much of of your life have you squandered in, in reckless living? How much of your life and and the good things that God has given to you have you wasted with wasteful living, chasing the pleasures of the world, thinking that that's where you're going to find satisfaction? Well, he runs out of everything. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. He began to be in need. That's an understatement. He has no family. He has no genuine friends or relationships. He has no possessions because he's wasted everything in wasteful living. And if that wasn't bad enough and hard enough, now there's a famine in the land. It's a total place of desperation and need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed the pigs in his fields. Can you think of a problem with that? Who was Jesus talking to during this time in this parable? Jews. How is the relationship between the Jews and the pigs? Not good. It was an unclean animal, yes? And so for this son who was a good Jewish child who left his father's home and went to a far country and then he had to go out to one of the the members of that country, the citizens of that country who doesn't care whether or not he's a Jew or is going to be degraded or defiled in the temple. And he says, oh yeah, you can go feed the, the pigs. Do you see how the picture Jesus is portraying of leaving the Father's love and chasing the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it does get worse. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed even with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
longing to be fed with the food of an unclean creature. In the original language there, the, the word no one gave him anything is in the emphatic position. Jesus is emphasizing the isolation. And guys, when we chase after this world, the, the, any sense of relationship that this world is going to provide for you is, is a house of cards. The, the relationships that, that sustain, the relationships that last, the relationships that support, the relationships that encourage, the relationships that upbuild, that aren't looking at you going, what do you have for me? Those are the relationships that you find within the body of Christ. And foundationally, that begins with that relationship with God. This young man had bet on himself and found himself wanting in the end with absolutely nothing. And the world will abandon you as quickly as it will woo you. And God's patience towards us, as the father's patience towards his son here, sometimes leads us into our misery and despair. But y'all, here's the deal. That often happens. In fact, not just often. Every time that happens by God's design. This isn't chance that the son ends up where he ends up. And if you've been running from the father, if you've been chasing after all these things, and right now you don't know which way is up in your life, and you feel the crushing weight of despair, and you feel depression, and you feel dissatisfaction, and you feel just the sadness and the moroseness and the disappointment with this world, guess what, y'all? That's from God. In fact, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, Look, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that what? Finish it for me. That God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What's Solomon talking about there? What we've been talking about here, chasing satisfaction under the sun. Solomon's about to, in chapter two, go in and say, look, I looked everywhere. I looked at relationships. I looked at sex. I looked at money. I looked at power. I looked at fame. I looked at all of it, and none of it satisfies. And Solomon's saying, this depression that I feel over the disappointment of the fact that this world can't satisfy me, he's saying, that's from God. It's on purpose. And so I want to talk to you out there tonight. If you're not in Christ and you are just miserable, God wants you right there. And if you think, man, that is just the most horrific thing in the world, wait until I finish the sermon. If you're out there and you're a believer tonight and you've been drifting and you've been not pursuing the Lord and you've been pulling away from the Father's love for you and you're sitting out there and you're going, man, I just, I feel distant from God. I feel dry. I don't feel close to him. I feel this gap between me and the Father. I, we're talking about the Father's love and I just don't know what that, that's like. And I, Guys, that's from God. He wants you right there. This father in this story for the son to end up where he was, was the best possible outcome because of where it drives him. Y'all, sometimes the father and his patient love for us leads us to rock bottom so that we recognize our need for him. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is what? He's patient towards who? He's patient towards you. Towards me, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, who's he talking about here? The entire world? No, he's talking about, I think, his, his chosen, his elect. He's patient in the world, not wishing that any of his elect should fail to reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet for the bride, for the church? Because not all the elect are saved. 
But he's patient towards us. And look, based on whatever your testimony looks like, some of you have testimonies where God has been patient towards you as you've been running as fast and as far away from him as you possibly can. And you've been in the depths of it. And in the midst of the depths of it, y'all, that's when God showed up and revealed himself to you and said, hey, I want you, I love you, I'm here, and you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my child, and I'm here, and I'm willing to take you and love you and embrace you and make you part of my family. But for some of us, because we are just hard-headed, myself included, we have to get to the end of ourselves before we're going to see how awesome and amazing and good the Father is. And so let me tell you tonight, if you are dry as a believer and feeling distant, the father is there saying, hey, I'm, I'm right here and I'm, I've led you to where you are in order for you to see that you need to come back. If you are here tonight and you are not in Christ and you are just hating life, let me tell you, God has put you in that position because he wants you to turn to him in faith and repentance and realize that only in the father's embrace can you truly find joy and hope and love in this life. Have you been missing the point of God's patience in your life? Have you been thinking to yourself, uh, he must not care because I haven't been struck by a lightning bolt? Have you thought to yourself, oh, you know what, he's just too busy to notice, or maybe my sin really isn't that big of a deal because, hey, I'm still living, breathing, doing the same things that I've always done before. Are you presuming upon his kindness, as Paul says in Romans 2, not knowing that his patience is meant to lead you to repentance? So the son is in the pig pen. He's got nothing. He wants to eat the food from the pigs, and there are some that believe that the food from the pigs was so uh, contaminated that, it, it, well, number one, it wouldn't have sustained him, so he couldn't live on the pods from the pigs. And there are others that, that think that it could have even done harm to him, so it was really even a possibility. It, it's, it's just this situation where it's, it's the, the desperation compounded because he's looking at food that the animals can eat, eat the unclean animals that even he, he can't even eat what these unclean animals are eating, and nobody is helping him. And y'all, that is this world. That's this world. It's not going to help you when you hit rock bottom. Verse 17. He has this epiphany as he's sitting in the slop. He has a thought, a moment of clarity comes to his mind. And he says this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He came to himself. We say that, right? I came to my senses. I started thinking clearly. I started thinking rightly about things. And he, in thinking clearly and thinking rightly, thinks about his father's servants. In fact, the word for servant here is, is not like a a servant who is well taken care of in the household and, you know, don't think like Downton Abbey kind of servants, right? No, think like the day laborers that are hired day in and day out and they're the, there to do the grunt work and they're out in the fields and they are doing the, the lowest of the low tasks and the son says, how many of them have more than enough bread to eat from my father's table? He's beginning to realize how good he, he really had it and how good his father really is. So he decides with this renewed clarity to go back and not to seek reunion with the father as far as coming back into the family. He doesn't think that he's worthy for that. He thinks that what he's done is too wicked and too evil for that. And logically, he's right, yes? I mean, if, if the son goes back to the father and the father says to the son, 
Look, I don't even want to see your face. You made your bed, now go lie in it. From a, a, a strictly earthly perspective, we could understand the Father in that. And the Father, the Son rather, expects that. And so he says, well, I'm going to go just see if he'll even hire me as one of his, his day laborers. But imagine how hard that would have been for the Son. Right? The thoughts that would have come through his mind. You can't go back there. You can't show your face there again. After making your grandstand show of telling your father you're as good as dead to me and taking half or a third of the state and going off and just squandering it, you can't go back there. Think of the words that you said to your father. Why would your father ever want you back? How can you go back empty-handed even? You've wasted everything that he gave you. What about your brother? What's he going to say? What about the other servants? Are they going to really want to give you a spot? Are they going to want to share their food with you? What if he says no? All these objections coming through his mind. And so he rehearses this statement, this, this confession to his father. He says, Father, I have sinned against you against heaven and before you. Look, my sin is against God and against you. What I've done is wrong. There's no doubt about it. He's not making excuses. He's not legitimizing. He's not rationalizing. He's not blame shifting. He's going, I'm wrong. I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's right. He's right. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The only logical conclusion is to go back and throw himself completely at the mercy of his father. He just underestimates his father's mercy and grace. He doesn't come back presumptuously or arrogantly or come back, you know, flashing the, the last name of the family going, what are you, I, let me in. There's my room. There's my, did you turn my room into a weight room? Of course you did, right? I was gone for a week and you put a bench press in there. No, he doesn't come back with, with pomp and, and, and arrogance about him. He comes back in abject humility, recognizing his sinfulness and his unworthiness to come before the Father. This was the purpose of the Father's patience. So that he would get to that place and realize his desperate need for what the, only the Father could provide him. The Son had no one else to turn to but the Father. And that's exactly where the Father wanted him. And that's exactly where the Father wants you. And this is what true repentance looks like. No rationalization, no blame shifting, just ownership and humility. Saying, I'm wrong. I've sinned against God. And I'm going to cast myself on his mercy. So he gets up and he goes. And you can imagine him as he goes back, or at least I can, rehearsing this speech along the way, playing out the different scenarios of what he thinks is going to happen as he goes back. Saying to himself over and over and again, I'm not, okay, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I'm no, I'm, no longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Should I, should I fall on my face? Should I fall on the ground? But then we find the unexpected. Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have... I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The text doesn't implicitly say this, but I have to imagine for the father to be able to see the son from a long distance away means that the father was what? He was, he was looking for the son. 
who's watching for the sun. There's a song, you guys like Shane and Shane and the Worship Initiative. You guys don't even know the half of Shane and Shane, right? They had a career way before all that stuff happened. And I would encourage you, you can find it on Spotify. There's a song called Prodigal Me by Shane and Shane. Prodigal Me. It's on their album Rocks Won't Cry, which is one of their best. Bernard is on there. doesn't even get billing because there was no thing as, such thing as Shane Bernard. He was just the backup vocalist at the time. But, uh, or Everett, sorry, Everett. But the song's called Prodigal Me by Shane and Shane. And it's, it's this amazing picture, the way that they talk about this parable in the song. And they picture the father and his servants looking for the son to come back day after day after day after day after day. Waiting for his return. Longing for his return. Praying for his return. The son probably expects maybe to meet the servant watching the gate when he gets back to the property. Maybe, maybe the older brother. But what he gets, there's no way he expected. It says there, the father sees him, which again implies to me that he's looking for him. Y'all, if you're a Christian here in the room and, and you've been drifting Have you thought that your father is looking for you to come back? He loves you. If you are his, he doesn't write you off. Did you know that? That Jesus says in John chapter 6, look, all that the father gives to me are mine, and I will not lose one of them. If you're in the room tonight and you're not a believer, did you know that if you are part of God's elect, if, you are, if God has his sights on you, did you, he's looking for you. The Father is looking for you tonight. Has a servant looking for you tonight. He sees him. But not only does he see him, notice what happens next. He, he's moved he feels something towards this son. What would you feel towards the son? Justification, right? Vindication. I told you. I told, look, I told you. Look what you did. Where's my money? Oh, you blew it all. Well, how did that end up for you? I still smell the pig poop on you. You're a disgrace. The father doesn't feel that. What does he feel? What does the text say? The father saw him and felt what? Compassion. He's moved to love and mercy towards this son. The, the word compassion is from the same word that we get mercy. And mercy is not getting what we deserve. And so the father sees the son and he's not angry with the son and he's not vengeful and wrathful towards the son. I don't know what your perspective of God is right now. But if you have not been running towards the Lord, if you've been running from the Father, if, if you think that he's this vengeful, angry God that's waiting for you to come back so he can put you in the corner and punish you and say, I told you so, what were you thinking? Then you don't know God. The Father sees the Son and feels compassion for him. His heart goes out to him. He loves him. And he, he doesn't sit there and wait for the Son to come to him. He doesn't 
sit on his chair and wait for the son in abject humility to crawl before him and say, look, I'm not worthy. He doesn't wait for the son to even get his words out. He sees him, he feels compassion, and he what? He runs to, to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. Not what we would expect. But that's just it, guys. The gospel is not what we expect. And the way that the gospel transforms your relationship to a holy God is not what we expect. So that a a God who at one point in time in your life you feared as judge, now you look to as father and he loves you with this kind of love. He is merciful and compassionate towards you with this kind of mercy and this kind of compassion. And so my question is this, are you in the pig pen? And if you are, what are your thoughts about your heavenly father right now? How do you picture him right now? Do you assume he's going to be angry with you or disappointed with you if you Come to him and try to draw near to him. Do you feel like you've, maybe you've blown it or maybe you're not a believer, you're not a Christian out there and you go, look, I've, I've, I've missed my chance. I've lived a, a life and a, a few lives over again. You don't understand what I've done. There's no way the father would accept me. And, and, and yet that's exactly what Jesus is driving at here. There's no way he should have accepted and embraced this son. And yet what does he do? He sees him, he loves him, he embraces him and he kisses him. That, that embrace and that kissing, that's a sign of acceptance and welcome and, and love. That love is available to you tonight. You've been running from God. You're not a a Christian. This overwhelming, merciful, compassionate, forgiving love is available for you tonight. You are a Christian. And it's been a rough stretch for you. You feel dry and you feel distant. This love from this Father is available for you tonight. Not the stern, looking down his nose, disciplining, saying, I told you so, what did you do, what were you thinking? But the Father who wants to take you in his arms and hold you and love you and welcome you into his his home. Second point tonight is this. Be amazed by the Father's love for you. Be amazed by the Father's love for you. You know, the fatherhood of God may be perhaps one of the most difficult facets of God's personhood for us to wrap our minds around. We can understand that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. Okay, yes, a God should be all-powerful. We can understand that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. We cannot, yes, a God should be omniscient. He should know all things. We can understand that he is the creator because a God should create. We, should, we can understand that he is, is just. We can understand that he is holy. We can understand that he is the judge. We can understand that he is the authoritarian. We can understand that he is the beginning and the end. We can understand that he is sovereign over all things. We can check the box on all those things. But now when we get down into the fact that that God is also the father, and that's when our gears begin to slip. And we find it difficult to wrestle with this doctrine. That he loves us. And I think a lot of the reasons why we struggle with that, number one, maybe, again, like I've said, your, your dad failed you. 
And so for you to think of, a, of God as a father just it, it, it misfires for you. Or maybe you can't conceive of, like I was just saying, the all-powerful creator of the universe really being fatherly towards you. Loving you with this compassion. Being merciful towards you, even in your sin, and being willing to, to bring you back in and, and embrace you and love you and forgive the all-powerful creator, God, that, that's him in my life? Yes. Or maybe you struggle with it because you've never had a father and you've got really no concept of this. And I understand that all of those are, are obstacles, but we also need to come face to face with the reality that Jesus is telling this parable in order to help us understand who God is. And he's painting the picture of God as this father. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his what for us? Love. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16. For God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only son for whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John four ten, In this is what? And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We read those verses and they fall on deaf ears because they have been, if I can coin a term, awanicized for us. They've become these little kitschy verses that are part of growing up as a Christian. Or we understand, okay, yes, I, I get that, that, that God loved us, as, he loved believers so that he, he sent Jesus to die for believers. He sent Jesus to die for, for, for the church. He sent Jesus to die for, for the elect. He, he loves people, and I happen to be one of those people. Well, it's true, as I said on the retreat, that Jesus died for a people, not a person, the Father wants a personal and individual relationship with you. And the Father loves you. Alex, Tim, David. Shay, Rachel, Lauren. But the Father loves you this much. I mean, we go back and we read Psalm 139 and the depth of the knowledge that the Father has of us. He's not a distant, disconnected deity. He is a Father that wants a relationship with you. Are you a Christian mired in, in struggling in sin? Come back to the Father. Are you defeated by sin? Come back to the Father. Have, have you been running to, from, from the Lord and you've never been a part of this family? Come to the Father tonight. Be amazed at this love and understand that this love is available for you tonight. That God is not an angry, disappointed, wrathful Father. That's not God. That's not the God that the Bible bears out. He's a God who's patient, he's a God who's merciful, he's a God who's gracious, and he's the father in this parable. Now let me 
talk for a moment about what allows him to be like that. Do you know what allows God to be like this and to shower us with this measure of love? It's the cross. See, the cross, the gospel changes everything. If the cross didn't happen, then God is the justly angry, wrathful father. And we're in trouble. But see, at the cross, as as Jesus took our place and as Jesus bore all of the father's wrath against our sin, all of the father's wrath against our sin, as Jesus took our place and bore all of that, now the, the father is free to love us and shower his mercy and grace upon us and we can come to him and we can be welcomed by him and he's gonna see us and he's gonna be compassionate towards us because when he sees us, he sees the sacrifice of his son. He sees the blood of Christ and he sees us as forgiven and now we are, as Paul says in Romans 8, part of his family and we can approach him and call him Abba. We can approach him and call him Father. Not in fearful dread, but in a confident boldness, as the writer of Hebrews says. The cross changes all of this. This love for the son, you can imagine it overwhelms him. In verse 21, I love the way that Jesus tells this story because the son as, as the father is hugging him and kissing him, the son's like, hold on, dad, I got something to say here. Hold on. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, Like the son doesn't even realize how much the father loves him at this moment. The son's still stuck where so many of us are stuck, going before the Lord and going before God with, with our, 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 our deeds of, of what we think that God is going to be happy with us and going, okay, God, do you love me now that I've done this? And, and God's sitting there going, are you kidding me? I, I love you already. And the son's trying to get the words out to say, hey, look, I, I've, I'm no longer worthy and just let me be hired as a, a slave. But the father, he doesn't meet him with a lecture. He doesn't meet him with folded arms. He doesn't meet him even with an I told you so. What he meets him with is love. And here's what he says in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, the father's not even listening. The father knows that the son is repentant. He can see it. He knows that the son's heart is one where he's coming back in, in abject humility and he recognizes that what he has done is wrong and that's why he's back and he's casting himself on the mercy of the father. The father understands all that. He doesn't need to grandstand. God knows these things, right? And he doesn't need to grandstand. But what does the father in the parable do? He says, look, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to celebrate. He calls for the the best robe, and bring the top of the line, and, and, and put it on him. Not servant's garb, as the son expected. Not even common dress, but no, the, the formal attire of celebration and partying. And he, he gets the best And then the father says, and you know what? Bring a ring and put it back on his his hand. The ring most likely would have had the the family seal on it and it would have been a symbol that the the son was again a part of the family. And put shoes on his feet. Son had nothing, not even shoes for his feet. Father says, put shoes back on his feet. And then he says, and bring the fattened calf. Fat and calf was usually reserved for significant feast days and religious holidays. It was reserved for, for celebration. 
And to prepare the fattened calf, as he says, would have taken hours upon hours, and yet the father says, it's worth it. We're going to eat, and we are going to celebrate. Why? What would prompt this kind of reaction from the father? Well, he says in the, the next verse, for this my son was dead. He was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. The father's overjoyed. Right before this, Jesus had told two other parables about joy at finding something lost. And here he returns to the theme again in the, the parable of the prodigal son. He says, this my son was lost and now he has been found. Look, the father rejoices and all of heaven rejoices when a lost sinner repents and puts their faith in Jesus as their savior. When a lost sinner comes back from the pig pen and comes to the father and casts himself on the mercy, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over that, right? But guys, I, I, I think there's a message for us, even if we're not coming for the first time to the Father for salvation, but simply coming back to him in repentance. The Father had another son, didn't he? Verse 25, I didn't read it at the beginning, but pick up in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came near and, and drew near to the, the house, he heard the music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things were all about. And the servant said to him, well, your brother has, has come back. And your father, he's killed the fattened calf. And because he's received him back safe and sound, he's excited, right? Verse 28, but he, the older brother, was, what, angry and refused to go in. And his father, notice, comes to him and entreats him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat even that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice the distance that he's putting between them. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Literally at that point in time, he had divided the estate between the two. The father didn't really own anything anymore. The older brother got two-thirds of the estate. The younger brother got one-third of the estate. So he says, you are always with me, and all that is mine is, is yours. Look, but it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's a reason to celebrate when the lost are found, when an unbeliever becomes saved, and that is true. And I will say yes and amen time and time and time again, but I want you to notice what happens. Just like the father went to the prodigal, the father goes to the older brother as well, Right? And the offer to the older brother is in between the lines, if I can read a little bit in between the lines. Hey, look, repent from your, your arrogance here and understand what's really going on and come in and join the celebration for your brother's back. Some of you in this room need to come to the father for the first time, just like the prodigal. But others of you need to recognize the love that the father has for the prodigal is the same love that he has for you. And you need to come back to him again. The, the, the elder brother needed the father's embrace as much as the prodigal needed the father's embrace. And the father was ready to embrace him just as he had the prodigal. Our final point tonight is this. Realize your father desires your repentance. Realize your father desires your repentance. You know, if I, if I gave you a brand new Tesla and said, here, it's a gift from me to you, it's not going to happen. But if I did, 
and you took it and you're like, wow, great, this is awesome, thanks so much, and all you ever used it for was Instagram backgrounds. How do you think that would make me feel? You think I would think that you were using it for its intended purpose? No. What should you do with it? Drive it, use it, enjoy it, right? Is there more joy in heaven over the repentance of a lost sinner for salvation than a sinning Christian for sanctification? I would say, yeah, probably corporately just because of the nature of conversion. But that said, let me ask you a question about this parable. If the elder brother had come in and sought his father's forgiveness for his pride and un- prideful and unloving heart, do you think that the father would have been overjoyed at this as well? I think so. I mean, maybe he wouldn't have gotten the fattened calf, but maybe that goat that the older brother wanted. No, I think he would have been excited about that. I think he would have been overjoyed with that, right? And so, Christian, I want you to think about what do you think happens in the heart of your heavenly father when you come to him in repentance? I'm talking to Christians right now in this moment. I mean, do you think that this is just old news to him? Do you think he begrudges the grace that he provides you? Christian, when you come to him and you say, look, what I'm doing, what I've done is wrong. I'm confessing my sin. I'm repenting. Do you think your heavenly father looks at you and, and, and wonders aloud, again? Seriously, again? You want me to forgive you again? Do you think he considers it a, a small matter not worth getting excited about when you come to him and, and ask for forgiveness and ask for him to forgive you? Think about what we do when we repent for a moment. We come before the Father with no excuses, with no rationalization, with no blame shifting, simply to plead the forgiveness of Jesus. Do you think the Father delights to forgive sinners through the application of the blood of the cross? When we come back before him and we say, Father, I need the forgiveness that I only have in Jesus, do you think that exalts Christ? in the eyes of the Father? Do you think that God is joyful to hear us say that? Rather than, oh, well, I can't, man, it's been a rough week. I need to clean myself up before I feel comfortable praying again. I need to get some distance between me and that sin before I feel comfortable going back to church again. I need to to get some some space between me and that sin before I feel comfortable reading the Bible again. Otherwise, I mean, I'm just gonna be hypocritical with this. And you're looking at at God who's given you Jesus and you're saying, yeah, I get it, God. I I know that forgiveness is right there in Christ, but I'm I'm gonna just let some time pass and that way I don't have to come to you in abject humility and ask you to forgive me again. You think the Father doesn't want to forgive you in Jesus? You think instead the Father just wants you to to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and slap some makeup on your stink and come back before him and be like, hey, am I good now? No, he wants to forgive you in Christ. He delights to forgive you in Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, what do we have? We have what? We have an advocate with the Father, one who is for us in Jesus. One who is pleading our case in his righteousness before the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins. And not just for ours only, but for the sins of the world. 
Acts 17.30 says this, look, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. God wants us to repent. He desires our repentance. And it's not a one-time deal. We need to, as, as Luther put it, resolve to daily be repenting. It's not just a one-time deal. Acts 26, 19 through 20. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient, says Paul, to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Y'all, listen, all of heaven may not celebrate when a sinning Christian repents, but I think your father does. I think your father does. And he wants you to repent. Romans 8, 31 through 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Y'all, if you think that God is begrudging the grace that he gives you when you have to go to him and seek forgiveness from him, then you, you don't get God. Now let me be clear. Does God want you to sin? No, Paul answers that for us in Romans 6, 1, doesn't he? What should we say? Should we sin then so that grace may abound? No. He says, may, not, may it never be. Absolutely not. No, God wants you to be holy. What I'm telling you is that when you come to him in, in genuine and true repentance, God's not angry with you. He's not disappointed. He's not annoyed that he's got to now, again, forgive you in Christ. You know, he's delighted to be reminded of the fact that he can forgive you in Christ. He did not spare his own son, but freely gave us all things in fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise those things. If you come to the Lord broken over your sin, sorrowful over your sin, you have a biblical promise right there on the screen that God will not despise that because he desires it, right? The father would have loved for the elder brother to come in. Some of you are the older brother and you need to come in. For some of you, this paradigm shift of God as father is strange to say the least and it's going to take some adjusting to. But like I said at the outset, this is one of the main ways that God has revealed himself to us is that he is our father. It may be uncomfortable, it may be different. You may prefer to think of him as the all-powerful creator. But I just want to exhort you that I think we would do well to think more of what it means that he is our father and that he's the type of father that we see here in Luke 15. Let's pray. On that note, Father, we come to you and don't fully understand our relationship with you as our father and us as your children, your sons and daughters. But I'm grateful for it, God. Lord, the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son is even more about the father than it is the son. His compassion, his love, his embrace, his persistence, and even 
looking for the return of his son. Lord, you've done that to us so many times. And Father, I, I pray tonight that if there are those in this room who are not believers that need to come to you for the first time, that they would do so tonight. Lord, I pray for those in the room that are experiencing that feeling of distance from you, dryness in their spiritual life, in their relationship, that they would see that they too can come and that they can be in, in that repentant approach to you, welcomed and embraced and forgiven and accepted, not with a how dare you or I told you so or what were you thinking, but with a, a love that can overwhelm and a mercy that's ours in abundance. God, I pray for those in the room who have not had fathers who have loved them well, who may struggle with this concept. I pray that you would be kind enough to reveal to them and what it looks like and what it means that you are a perfect and good father who cares about them, loves them. God, I pray that all of us this week would draw closer to you in this regard, in this relationship with you as our father and we as your sons and daughters. What an amazing privilege that is, God, that we get to call you father and that you call us your children, your sons and daughters, not your slaves, not your servants, not your subjects. You are the ruler of the world, the king of the universe, and yet you are Father. What an amazing reality that is. There's one that we would lean into more, embrace more, love more. And that should give us the grace to be able to do so, we pray in Jesus' name.